This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for February 10th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, in the United States and many other parts of the world, the focus has been on vaccination as the primary means of bringing the COVID-19 epidemic under control. But as we know, there are a few issues that have limited this approach. First and foremost, there just isn't enough vaccine available in many countries, and in some countries, almost none. On top of that, we know that there are variant viruses out there, and some suggestion that the current vaccines might not be as protective against them. There's a lot of news in the popular press about those variants, but we haven't seen the primary data yet. So today, let's talk about some of the questions we're getting from patients, friends, and relatives in cases where the data are limited. Let's start with masks. Some authorities are suggesting that double masking should now be the standard. What do we know and what can we extrapolate from what we know? Well, most of what we know, in fact, comes from extrapolation because this is an area where it's difficult to do randomized controlled trials and there really hasn't been very much. Most of what has been done is in observational studies And while these have been interesting, there's a lot of confounding in those studies. So here's kind of what we know. At this point, it appears the major route of transmission is via respiratory droplets, which are these large particle droplets. There is good evidence that transmission can occur through the tiny particles called aerosols that remain suspended in the air for a long period of time. But this appears to be less common than droplet transmission. And so that understanding of the disease is what dictates what's likely to be the best mask. To put it most simply, surgical masks offer protection against droplets, while N95 masks protect against both droplets and aerosols. In the pre-COVID era, we commonly used surgical masks and only used N95 masks when we suspected that a patient was infected with a pathogen that's infectious via aerosol, such as varicella or tuberculosis. So COVID-19 aside, why don't we always use the better mask? I could go a little farther and say, why don't we always use PAPRs, the powered air purifiers that are used in places like Ebola virus units, uh, where we have very, very good protection. The answer is pretty easy. Even when N95s were not in short supply, and they certainly are now, they're very uncomfortable and inconvenient. My own lab studies tuberculosis, and that requires people to wear N95s for hours at a time. And no one likes it. In fact, many people can't tolerate these tight-fitting masks for an extended period of time. They have to be fitted individually. And even then, most people don't wear them correctly. And that diminishes the amount of protection you get. So the best mask is the one that you can wear. And for me, I take that lesson to non-medical masks. People are wearing all kinds of things from medical masks to homemade masks. And there are several studies that look at the quality of filtration provided by these various materials. The bottom line is that different masks vary in their ability to block droplets. But it's important to remember that we're not looking for perfect. We're looking for practical. The thicker the mask and the more filtration you get, the harder breathing becomes. Double masking does probably provide more filtration than single masks, but will people wear double masks? Because that is the bottom line of masking. The challenge, as I see it with masking, is what you just focused on, Eric, is the issue of wearability. And it's also the circumstance, and we'd like a yes-no answer. But the reality is, is that the risk of exposure that I have to SARS-CoV-2 
depends on if I'm indoors, outdoors, in a crowded place, not a crowded place, in the hospital, doing a medical procedure on a patient that may aerosolize or pharyngeal secretions, such as our ENT colleagues or anesthesia colleagues do. So that I think we have to think about the masking in relation to the level of risk in the circumstance and the wearability. And wearing a PAPR during an aerosolizing or pharyngeal procedure is not as complicated as wearing a PAPR 24-7. And so I think that we have to think about single mask, double mask, N95 in relation to the wearability and the gradient of risk that we go through during our day, which is a 24-7 activity. And therefore, we need to get masks that we can actually use and that have the level of quality needed for the level of risk so that not only I wear them, but also if the other person is wearing it, then that offers value as well. And if we create an environment where it's hard for any of us to wear a mask or we wear them improperly below the nose or not adherent to the around the nose and mouth, that decreases the value of the mask. And it's both myself, but also the other person that I'm interacting with or persons in a crowded setting. I mean, even the simplest masks have their problems. This is an audio podcast, so people can't see the fact that all three of us, and in fact, Tim in addition, are all disabled. We have to wear glasses. And Steve pointed out earlier how hard it is to wear glasses, particularly outside while wearing a mask. In the cold New England weather, it means that your glasses fog up and you can't see. So you can choose to be safe or to see, and that can be quite a trade-off. So again, we want to make people as likely to wear masks as possible, and that means some compromises. What about social distancing, where there have also been mixed messages? The CDC has been advocating six feet of physical distance, but there are advocates for allowing closer contact as low as three feet in schools. So what distance is actually safe? Well, this is another case where there's no magic to this. The rationale for social distancing comes from understanding how respiratory droplets spread. Droplets are heavy because they're rather large. Gravity pulls them down and they fall fairly rapidly. How far they travel depends on how forcefully they're expelled. For example, there have been super spreader events associated with singing and shouting, two activities that might produce more and higher velocity droplets and may also aerosolize some virus. So there could be different mechanisms there. The rule of thumb that the CDC uses is that droplets tend to travel no farther than three feet. So six feet gives a good margin of error. But it's important to realize that that's an arbitrary number. How far droplet spread is going to be a function of what you're doing, and whether you're indoors or outdoors. And there's a major additional factor, which is masking. Droplets produced by a person who is masked are going to be limited as compared to someone who is unmasked. And if they're encountering another masked person, it further decreases the risk of those droplets getting from one person to another. So the bottom line is that there's a logic to these numbers and observational studies seem to bear them up. But no matter what distance is set, masking helps considerably. So as we try these various ways to decrease transmission, where does testing fit into the picture? Well, Steve, I mean, I think this speaks to the theme that we've been talking about, which is transmission is dynamic. What are the social circumstances? What's the infectivity of the individual? What kind of precautions are put into place? 
And testing is one of the most important ways to decrease the risk of having somebody infectious in the room. And one of the challenges we've had over the last year has been the limitations on the availability of testing. And that has dramatically changed. And we have much more testing available and then different kinds of tests available from the antigen to the PCR, which is what we're used to. The question though is, how available is it? And it's not that I was tested, like a genetic test. Once you know my gene, I only need that once. It's a dynamic test, which is this week is different than last week, or today may be different than a few days ago, depending on exposures. So I think that we still have a ways to go in enhancing our testing capability for the circumstance at hand. And the more we're able to identify, particularly self-identify infection, the easier it is for people to change their behaviors accordingly with isolation or quarantine, depending on the nature of the exposure or if one is infected. But I still worry that our testing is not up to scale, given the amount of transmission in the country and the availability of the tests where they're being deployed still in a availability mindset rather than what would be ideal for controlling transmission. I think that testing has been one of the most disappointing aspects of our response to the outbreak. Testing still, as you say, Lindsay, is rather limited. In fact, it's quite limited as compared to what we'd want. And there are two aspects to that. One is that uh, we just don't have the tests that we need. We still need rapid testing. We have some, we're not deploying it. We should be using rapid testing much more frequently and much more commonly and in all kinds of different scenarios. And then there's sort of a lack of understanding of what the tests mean. A perfect test only says that you are not able to transmit disease at that moment. But there are lots of criteria for testing that say you should be tested within the past three days. Well, that doesn't mean you're not transmissible three days later. So in a time of very high disease burden, they have some value, but that value is rather limited because the window for asymptomatic patients, the window of transmissibility is rather short um, and it's going to easily be missed by poorly timed tests. So I think we have a lot of work to do here. I mean, what you highlight, Eric, is twofold. The accessibility of the test. Can I do it when I think I need to do it versus my provider has to test me? And the utility of the test, which is tests can provide different information in different settings. And it's not a one-size-fits-all result. When we admit somebody to the hospital with a respiratory illness and we're trying to diagnose COVID, that's a very different use than we're trying to understand I'm at home, I'm going to go visit my elderly parents or grandparents and I wanna make sure I'm not at risk for bringing it to them. And so the use case actually stresses the testing characteristics differently. And the tests themselves, be they PCR antigen, have different sensitivities and therefore have different utilities. And unfortunately, given the complexities of these elements, it makes it that much harder to deploy testing the way we need to. Of course, it can't be deployed if we don't actually have the test kits available. 
But I think we have to do both, increase the manufacturing, but also better educate each other about the use cases so that the tests can be used properly for the purpose at hand, which is very different in congregate settings prior to going to college or visiting a relative or part of an illness assessment or post-exposure assessment. But all of these complexities, we have to better help our community understand the use case and get the tests into the hands of all of us so that we can participate in decreasing transmission. You know, I started by saying that testing is disappointing for all the reasons that you were just recounting. But let me go a little more optimistic. This is the place where we can make the biggest difference in the shortest period of time. Developing a test and validating that test is relatively rapid as compared to developing a vaccine or a drug and then testing that. And we should be making an investment there. And that investment could pay off in a very short time. Uh, These are more engineering problems than they are biological problems at this point. And we really could have a big impact by improving things. And it's a social problem in the deployment. I do think that we have a lot to learn from use cases out there. And I know of many colleges and universities that have applied aggressive testing strategies to be able to be open and have students in-house. We can learn from these different examples in our nursing homes, senior centers, college universities, military, where testing has been applied strategically and has abated transmission substantially and allowed some increase in normality of activity for those functional environments. And I think there's a lot to be learned in understanding some real-world rollout of testing how we want to do it versus what we're able to do. Let me bring up one tangent to that, which is what do you do with a positive test? We haven't talked so much about this, but my impression is that when people test positive, they're instructed they should quarantine. But how many people actually know what they should do when they quarantine? How do you even find that information out? If your physician looks up the CDC guidelines and passes those along to you, that's great. But I don't think that's what happens very often. And in fact, people just stay home, meaning they expose their household members. They oftentimes, those household members are still out in the community. So transmission continues to occur. So again, it's not just the test, as you're saying, it's the deployment of the test and then how you will use the information you derive from those tests. So Getting back to visiting your elderly parents or grandparents and looking at it from a slightly different angle, as an increasing number of people are being vaccinated, there are a lot of post-vaccination questions arising. How should people who have been vaccinated modify their behavior? Can they now visit those relatives? Can they go on a trip? What should they be doing? Well, let's start with the positive, which is that the vaccines that we're currently using in the U.S. are extremely efficacious in trials. They're about as good as could be hoped. That means they're protective in the 90 to 95% range, but that's not 100%. And if the study results hold up in real life, vaccine recipients will have a substantially diminished risk of disease, a 10 to 20 fold risk of disease. But even in the trials, people did get infected and they did get sick. And so while we hope that transmission is decreased, I doubt that it will be eliminated by vaccines alone. It's also important to remember that the trials of our current vaccines were performed several months ago at different time in the epidemic. And now we have the viral variants, which we keep mentioning along the way, and the emerging evidence that 
infection or vaccination might not be quite as effective for some of these variants. And that means the real world effectiveness of the vaccines might decline over time as these variants take over. So the bottom line for me, given these two pieces of information, is that people should behave the same way whether they're vaccinated or not. People should still be practicing masking and social distancing and the other measures that will decrease the already small risk of infection and vaccine recipients. And remember, you're out in the community where no one knows if you've been vaccinated. So you want to send the message that you're protecting them in the same way that they're trying to protect you uh, with a mask and with the appropriate behaviors. So we've got great vaccines, but as of now, they're not get out of jail free cards. And Eric, I think what's embedded in your comments are many of the uncertainties that are still swirling around us associated with the vaccines. They have efficacy beyond what many of us expected, but we don't know about asymptomatic acquisition, about transient infection and shedding even without illness. We don't know about the durability of the immune response and the level of protection, let alone if variant viruses emerge and therefore may not be quite as ideally covered by the vaccine inserts. So there are lots of questions that we still need to be very cautious about in terms of how best to apply the vaccines in changing our behavior. The transmission level in the community is so high that one needs to be very cautious and encourage good behavior in all of us to decrease transmission. I think it becomes a different discussion when transmission becomes very low and we have some more data on how well the vaccines work. But the other piece that I've been thinking a lot about in conversations with colleagues is do we really understand infection dynamics? What do I mean by that? Is that if I've been vaccinated and I have immunity, if I'm exposed to the virus, do I truly not acquire it and have low level replication and perhaps some boosting of my immune response with low level, um, whether it's colonization, which I'm not sure really happens with viruses or low level infection that causes no symptoms. And I think this went on a lot with measles and mumps 40 years ago, and with the eradication of measles and mumps in our communities, that has allowed immunity to wane and some of the outbreaks to occur that we've seen in individuals who have been vaccinated and then exposed to the wild type virus. So I think we may not be thinking about infection uh, as dynamically as we need to, which is, in individuals who are immune or partially immune, might there be transient states of low-level asymptomatic infection that boost the immunity, have no clinical meaning, but might lead to some degree of transmission or at least some degree of viral replication? And that has to be worked out for us to really get at undermining transmission. Sorry, my batteries uh, must be giving out on my headset. Um, Tim, can I use my lousy microphone to record one extra thing? Um, I think you make several excellent points there, Lindsay. And the one that I'd focus on is when do we know we can change our behavior? And I think that the idea that we can change our behaviors the moment we get vaccinated isn't right for exactly the reasons that both of us have been discussing. And the real trigger is going to be, as you said, the prevalence of infection and how severe that infection is. And that's a question that is dictated by everyone's behavior, not just our own behavior. So I think that 
in order to loosen things up, we need to see the numbers come down. We need to see fewer hospitalizations and fewer deaths. Vaccines are a major component of that. But I think all the other measures we've been discussing today are equal contributors, and that all remains very important right now. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.